Um, if you have your Bible and would like to, you can turn to Psalm 22. It's also going to be on the screens to help you follow along. I'm going to read through the entire psalm, and then we're going to um, hear what the Lord teaches us through this this morning. So Psalm 22, to the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Hear now the word of the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. And like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a posture, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me. From the mouth of the lion, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I'm often asked what I studied before I was a pastor, and I explain, I studied music for four and a half years and then got a degree in philosophy. And in those years of studying and learning philosophy, at least back in my day, the, the fashionable belief system at, at 
that the school, and in my major, was, was not you know, an atheism or materialism as we like to think. It was actually at that time Buddhism, very popular among my philosophy class. And, and we used to joke and tease the Buddhist, uh, so-called Buddhist classmates that it's easy to be Buddhist until you stub your toe. Because Buddhism operates on the, the founding principle or belief that suffering, along with everything else, is an illusion. And if you can see past the illusion, you'll stop suffering, which is nice. If, if we could just get to that point of not believing that our suffering is real, then we wouldn't feel it anymore. And I've known several people in the past who thought they believed that right up until they actually started to suffer. Once you stub your toe or get the flu or are betrayed by a friend or hold the hand of a loved one as they die painfully, it's very hard to believe it's just an illusion that you can see through. The Christian faith is not a matter of ignoring or being unaffected by pain. Suffering is not an illusion. It's very, very, very real. And the author of this psalm, King David, he knows it. He feels it. And in his suffering, he cries out to God and is met with silence. He sees and hears no answer at first. Now, suffering might not be so bad if we didn't feel alone and unhelped in the midst of it. So is that the Christian response to the Buddhist view that, that suffering is real and we just have to endure it alone until heaven? No, it's not that either. We are in the midst of a series that we're doing for the next seven weeks on singing our sorrows. We're looking at the Psalms, specifically a collection of Psalms that delve into the painful reality of life. These are not the now I am happy all the day Psalms. These are the hard ones. These are the ones that put words to our groanings and our frustrations. Now the Psalms were meant to be sung in the church. They were the worship themes of God's people. Can you imagine showing up to worship and the first song is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But yet that is at times what we need. We need help putting into words our frustrations and our pain. It's good for us to do this because these songs through the Psalms, they give us roadmaps for dealing with our sorrow in a world that is filled with it. So as David deals with feeling abandoned by God, we're going to look at Psalm 22 and we're going to ask, what do we do when we feel abandoned by God? The first thing we need to do is we need to recognize the pain that surrounds us. Because the Psalms sometimes speak of God and to God in ways that shock us and maybe make us uncomfortable. If you heard your friend saying these words, your brother or sister in the Lord, you might say, no, 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 don't talk like that. But listen to verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from, my, from saving me and from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer me. And by night, but I get no rest. And what we see here is that being holy does not mean that we are not upset by our problems. In fact, the Bible does not tell us, the Bible never tells us to pretend or to act like everything is always good. Instead, Scripture encourages us to be honest about what is happening 
and about how we feel about it. Because God is big enough to handle our frustration and our anger and our anxiety and our fears and our confusions. But we have to be careful to note David's question here. The question on David's heart is not, why is this happening? You know, we, we looked last week at Psalm 38, and we saw that there was a bit of an answer to that question for David. He said, look, I've done something to deserve this. I'm guilty, and I'm being punished for my sin, at least in part. But here, there's no talk of that. There's just the acceptance, the, the recognizing of the pain that's all around him. You know, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We have gotten very comfortable, have we not, in a, in a modern society where Christianity has been the majority and been very accepted and respected for generations, and now suddenly that's not the case. Or, or we've, we've falsely believed that as long as we believe and trust in God, everything's going to be all right. But that's never the case in Scripture. Peter says, look, don't be surprised when you suffer. That's the norm. That's to be expected. So the question for David is not, why is this happening? The question on David's heart here in Psalm 22 is, God, where are you when this is happening? And for the Christian, the answer to that question is shockingly clear in a way that David could never have imagined when he wrote it. Because we know that we serve and cry out to a God who not only sees our suffering, but who has stepped into it and experienced it himself. As Jesus, God experienced in human form the miseries of this life. Look at verses 7 and 8. David says, All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads, mocking me with these words. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let God rescue him if he delights in him. Now look at Matthew 27, how Jesus is mocked with those words on the cross. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders mocked him, saying, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Or look at verse 18 in Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John, witnessing the events of the crucifixion, writes that the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided into four parts, one for each soldier. But the tunic was seamless, woven from one piece from top to bottom, so they said, let's not tear it, but they cast lots to see whose it shall be. And John recognized this was fulfilling what David spoke of in Psalm 22. Or look at verse 15 of the psalm when David says, My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And on the cross, Jesus cries out as his tongue dries up. He cries out that he is thirsty. Or verse 16, Dogs encompass me and a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. David's writing this before crucifixion was ever even a thing. And yet he foretells the way that Jesus would be put to death. We do not worship a God who stands far off watching us suffer, either disinterested or disgusted or merely sad but helpless to be involved when he views our suffering. We worship a God who entered human history, took on human form with the intention that he himself would suffer just as we do ultimately leading to death on the cross. But why? Why did he go to a cross to die? Was it just so he could understand our pain? Was it just so he could fulfill what was spoken in Psalm 22? No, it wasn't just so that he could get or understand our pain. It was so that he could end it. As the prophet Isaiah spoke of 
him in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross in the place of sinners gives us the freedom to be honest and unsurprised when we experience pain. Because it means that God knows it. God understands it. But most importantly... Jesus experienced that suffering and pain so that in the end, he may deliver you from it. Because of Jesus, we can recognize our suffering and know that it is real and face it and own up to it, but also know deeply in our hearts that it is temporary because Christ suffered in order to take our suffering away. So the first thing David encourages us to do is to recognize the pain that surrounds us. But the next thing we're called to do here is to remember the truth that secures us. There's something very beautiful in this psalm that I hope is an encouragement to many of you. Because very often, too often, especially in our Reformed Christian traditions, the answer to any kind of sadness or frustration or this feeling abandoned by God, like David is describing, is to find the theological error and fix it, right? The assumption is, if you are feeling this way about God, then you're either believing the wrong thing or you don't yet know the truth that you need to know. And so our solution is what? Hey, I have a great book for you to read. Hey, here's a verse for you to memorize. Here's a sermon for you to download and listen to later. And and if you can fix your thinking, you'll be fine. Anybody find that that didn't work for them? No, No hands, please. Save your hands for later. That's... In Psalm 22, we see that David knows what he needs to know. He's not confused. He's not wrong in his theology. He's not feeling these things because of what he believes. He's feeling them in spite of what he believes. Just after those first two verses where he says, God, why are you so far from me? Why have you forsaken me? He then goes on in the next two verses, verses 4 and 5, to say, Our fathers trusted in you. I've heard the Bible stories. I know. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you. They were rescued. They trusted and they were not put to shame. And then again in verses 6 and 7, he gets downcast. He says, I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm scorned by mankind. I'm despised by the people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They're making mouths at me. They're wagging their heads. And then he goes on in verses 9 and 10 to say, but you've been with me from my birth You're the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. You've never left me alone. From the moment I began to exist, you were there. Do you see what David's saying? He's saying, look, I know you're here. I know what kind of God you are. I know your character. I know what you're capable of. I know that I'm not abandoned, but I feel that way. And I hope that is freeing for some of you. To know that you can believe rightly. You can remember the truth and have your theology perfect, but still experience emotions that don't fit the truth that you believe. Because even when we believe the truth, our feelings don't always follow right away. I was raised in my college years uh, in Campus Crusade for Christ, got a lot of training and teaching through them. And one of the uh, resources we use is an evangelistic tract called The Four Spiritual Laws. And, and after it takes you through the story of the gospel and, and, and calls you to faith, there's a page with a very helpful illustration called The Fact 
faith feeling train. And you know it's holy because it's alliterative. Fact, faith, feeling. And what it pictures is a train on a track, and the engine of the train is fact. What does God's word tell me is true? And then following the fact is faith, me believing the facts. And then what follows at the end is feelings. Because what needs to lead me and guide me is what God has said is true, the truth that secures me. My feelings have to follow that as I believe, as I have faith in God's word. But the problem is sometimes we get stuck in our feelings and we try to let that lead the train. And it doesn't work that way. And so just as there's an unhealthy extreme of ignoring our pain, of, of trying to pretend it's not bothering us, it's, it's possible to go too far in the direction of recognizing our pain that we lose our anchorage. So just like we need to recognize the pain that surrounds us, we need to remember the truth that secures us. And it's clear that David is doing exactly that. Because even as he gets no answer, he continues to recognize that God is the one who will deliver him. To you, But you, O Lord, do not be far off, he says in verse 19. O you, my help. He's not looking anywhere else for help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I want to go back and look again at Jesus on the cross and see how he is doing this for us. He's crying out on the cross the very words that begin this psalm in Matthew 27. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting and pointing to Psalm 22. He's experiencing that anguish. He's recognizing that pain. But at the same time, he knows that he is in God's hands. And the last words recorded for us of Christ on the cross in Luke 23, Jesus calls out with a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Though he felt abandoned, he knew the truth that God would ultimately save him even from the grave. And though he cried out in anguish that he felt forsaken, he nonetheless said, God, you're still here and you are my father and I commit my spirit to you. Now this is hard because our feelings and our circumstances are, are very, very real and tangible and hard to ignore. And sometimes the truth of what God has told us seems distant. It's ephemeral. It's hard to grab onto. It's like if you've ever been in a strange city at night in the rain driving and you don't know where you're going and all you can do is listen to that voice on the GPS telling you, turn right here. And you're looking and going, I don't even know if I see the right turn yet, but that's what I need to do. One of my favorite verses in Scripture puts it this way. In 2 Corinthians 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. They're going to pass away. They're going to change. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Our troubles, our problems, our feelings, and our circumstances that we see, they're going to change. But God's Word will never change. It's the one thing we can always trust as we sang. 
On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. My feeling of abandonment, my questioning about the presence of God, that will change. That is sinking and shifting sand. But his promise, his oath, his covenant, his blood will not change. The third thing that we need to see here, in addition to recognizing the pain that surrounds us and remembering the truth that secures us, the last thing is we need to recite the hope that steers us. And we see this because the rest of the psalm, after verse 21, seems to radically change in tone, almost as if it's written by a different person in a different situation. We go from, why have you forsaken me, to, in verse 22, I'm going to tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'm going to praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. He has heard when he cried to him. What happened there? What happened is the psalmist made a choice. When we are caught between the pain that we feel and the truth that we know, we have to choose which one we're going to follow forward. Which one's going to steer our course? Which narrative sets our direction? The narrative of, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? Or the narrative of, in you our fathers trusted. And you delivered them. David chose the latter. And in doing so, he teaches us to recite the hope that steers us. Recite might be an unusual word to use here, but it's, it's very intentional. And not just because I wanted another word that started with the letter R. You know, my kids, in their school, they have to learn how to recite poems. For Taekwondo, they have to learn how to recite Bible verses. For Sunday school, they have to learn how to recite catechism questions and answers. We learn how to recite things. That's how we learn things. That's how we remember things. That's how we inscribe them, not only on our minds, but on our hearts. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to do with our praise, with the gospel. We need to recite the good news, even when we don't feel it or believe it. We need to learn it. We need to practice it. We need to remember it, especially when we don't feel it. When we're in those times of, God, why are you so far, so far away from my words of groaning? We need to recite what it is that gives us hope. And so David moves from recognizing his pain to remembering the truth, and finally he begins to recite his hope. Note that he does it publicly. Verse 22, I'm going to tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'm going to praise you, God. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. So he says, it's not just a personal, private, quiet thing. I'm not just trying to remember it in my mind. No, I'm, I'm going to stand out there. I'm going to say those words. I'm going to stand in the gathering of God's people and confess my faith. I'm going to gather with those people and confess my sin and hear the assurance of pardon. I'm going to sing the words that remind me of what God has done and will do. And then he looks ahead to how the story will end. Verse 24, he's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. And then verse 26, the afflicted, they're, they're going to hear. They're going to eat. They're going to be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. So even in the midst of his struggle and his questioning, he looks ahead. He step, here's what he's doing. He's stepping outside of his own story. And he says, you know what? There's a bigger story right now. A story of which my own experience is just a small part. 
Why have you forsaken me is an honest and good question. But if we don't move beyond it and see the bigger story, we're going to end up judging our life and God's power by what happens to us. If my hope, if my hope is based on how comfortable my life is right now or in the near future, it's not much of a hope. But if my hope is based on the future kingdom of God, I will never be disappointed. Listen to how David describes it in verses 27 and following. The ends of the earth are going to remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. Kingship belongs to the Lord. God, you, I, you don't feel like you're here, but you are king and you are in charge. And he rules over the nations. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is your greatest strategy in the midst of despair. If you've ever read The Pilgrim's Progress, or if you haven't, I encourage you to, an extended allegory of the Christian's journey. The story of, of the pilgrim whose name is Christian, and at one point, along with his traveling companion, Hope, they are trapped in the dungeon of the giant Despair, who is a giant and who represents Despair. Good name. And as they're trapped in that dungeon, they're locked in their cage. And as time passes, more and more time, they grow deeper in despair. And they don't know how they're going to get out or what they're going to do. And it gets so bad that the pilgrim Christian is even considering taking his own life because he's so deep in despair. And as he and his companion Hope are talking together, another good argument for fellowship and reciting together the hope that we need, Christian suddenly realizes. He says, how foolish I've been. Before we got here, I was given a key. And he reaches into his stuff and he pulls out a key and the key is called promise. And he takes the key and unlocks the cage of despair. Because it is the promise of God that releases us from despair. Rather than fix your eyes on your circumstances, you need to bring to mind aloud, if you must, the promises of God. It is these powerful and unchanging and unfailing promises that serve not only as the key to getting out of the cage of despair, but also as the guide, the north star that steers our way. Even Jesus, in his darkest hour, looked ahead to the hope that can only be found in the promises of God. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As Christ is on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Christ is enduring the agony of the cross, he is motivated by the joy before him, by the hope of what God has promised will be true. So don't just think about it. Don't just think about the promises of God. Don't just think about what he has said will come true, but do as David did and recite. Speak the words of hope. This is why public worship is so crucial and why we gather for Bible studies, community groups, accountability times, whatever it is that you need to gather with God's people again and again together to learn and to remember and to be reminded and to recite the words that give you hope, the hope that steers you, to be reminded of the real story that is going on of which your life is but a moment and a small part. 
How does that story end? And then as Christ did, for the joy, that joy set before you, endure. In a few minutes, we're going to be singing these words. What truth can calm the troubled soul? If ever there was a soul, it was David crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What truth can calm a troubled soul? God is good. That's the truth. But, but where is his grace and goodness known? How do we know that God is good? It's in our great Redeemer's blood. Here's the beauty of what the psalm teaches us. We who hear it after the death and resurrection of Christ. That when we sink low into despair and we are deep in a sense of loss and abandonment and the silence of God, no matter how deep we go, we find our Savior is already there in the depths waiting. The psalm that voices our sorrow over abandonment is the psalm that also points us again and again to Christ on the cross. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. But how do I know that He is good? It's because of what Jesus has done. Apart from Him, we are forsaken by God. Let that sink in. On account of your sin, just as Adam and Eve were driven from the garden for their sin, so now for all of their offspring, in Romans 3, we are told that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If it was not for the cross, you would not just feel abandoned, you would be abandoned. But God does not leave it that way. And so hear the words of Ephesians 2. You are told to remember. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, now in Christ, you who were once far off, you who were once forsaken and abandoned, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He has taken your punishment that you might be brought near. You cannot outsuffer your Savior. He has endured true abandonment. He has endured so much in order that you who were separated, you who were far away and forsaken by God, could be brought near and now may sing as we will. What is our hope? In life and in death, it's Christ alone. Christ alone. Let us thank Him that we are not abandoned or forsaken, but we have been brought near. Our Heavenly Father, we praise You. We praise You as David did. Though some listening to this are not sure You are there. Some feel abandoned, some feel forsaken. Some feel that you are far from the words of our groanings. But we have been brought near in Christ. You are the one who has delivered us, and we will praise you. Guide us, Heavenly Father. Help us to recite the words that give us hope as we remember the truth, even in the midst of the pain that we recognize. God is good. And our hope in life and in death is Christ. We thank you that you have given him fully, freely, and without fail to your people. We pray these things in his name. Amen.